Yeah, I, so, some of you might know, but the the way Jordan, me, and Nick met each other was by playing the saxophone. So all three of us, and all three on, of you like, play the saxophone. Now yeah, that's yeah. that's a trio I'd like to Absolutely. see. Absolutely, I mean, on tour, make that I don't happen. Think wants to. <laughs> you might want to see it, but you're not going to want to hear it. This is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon, bringing to you the best in news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. And I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. This is Bourbon Community Roundtable number 87. And this one dives into a single topic that has kind of perplexed me over the past few months. It seems that there's only a handful of brands that people talk about, yet there's over 2,000 distilleries now across the United States. I would like to think that the stigma of craft is beginning to change, but my newsfeed tells me differently because it's always looking at pictures of the same select few. So what makes us always gravitate to the big six? Or perhaps maybe we should refer to it as the big seven now. Is it accessibility because it's either on the shelf or could be on your shelf pending allocation? Is it marketing and how the big brands can throw their weight around at the distributor level? Or is big bourbon just better than craft? Enjoy this week's episode, and now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Matt S. With the rise of interest in mocktails and alcohol-free spirits, have you ever considered reviewing them or considered trying them for your own interest? I would be interested if they hold up the same as traditional spirits. Cheers. Great question, Matt. And I have indeed uh, reviewed uh, several of them. And I have changed my stance on this. When these first came out, I was like, ah, this is bad. You you know, you really shouldn't be, you know, promoting this or whatever. But then I kind of I kind of realized the, the rationale uh, behind them. And it's something I'm a big supporter of. And that's responsibility. And, you know, there are many people in this industry who work for distilleries or behind the bar or even own a brand and, you know, for, for health reasons or for marital reasons or whatever, they need to walk away from spirits for a little bit. And sometimes they go full blown sober and sometimes they just really take, you know, three months off and, you know, they're going to be at a party and, you know, they still want to be mingling and what have you. And they don't want to walk around with a, you know, Pepsi and a lime or something like that. You know, they want something that looks like a cocktail and, you go to those parties if you're in the industry, man. There is pressure on you to drink something. There is, and you can you can say no, and you can you can be drinking soda water or you can be drinking water, but eventually you get tired of like 30 people asking you why you don't have a drink in your hand, and that pressure is real. But if you have a mocktail in your hand, they that pressure isn't there. And I hate to say that peer pressure is a thing, but let's be honest, we all know that peer pressure can be a thing. The other aspect is, is some people, some people may be on a medication, but they still like the the flavor. And I, what I have found is in my reviews and my tasting of them, there was a cinnamon flavored whiskey that I really liked. It's called uh, Kentucky 74. And I tasted this on my YouTube channel and was really, really blown away at how much I actually like this. And it's a cinnamon flavored whiskey. The whole thing is it's not meant to be, it's not meant to taste like bourbon, but it, it's got like, it's got kind of like a mouthfeel like a whiskey and it's got cinnamon to it. 
And I'm not drinking Fireball, folks, so I don't know if it compares to Fireball at all. But I just know that it was a very lovely flavor profile. I enjoyed it, and I could see someone making a nice cocktail with it. I've also seen a lot of gins. I think gin is is the sweet spot for spiritless spirits. So if that's something that you are looking to get into, I would say go to your store and take home a couple of the spirit-free gins. The other thing is the distilleries, they're all they're all pushing it. Uh, they're all they all have a brand because bartenders historically, um, you know, I don't I want to say historically, but in the last 15 years, we've lost a lot of bartenders too young and there's a big movement in the bartender community to be healthy and I support that. And so mocktails and spiritless uh, products are a part of that trend and I and I'm here for it. I'm here for it. I want people to be healthy and I want people to feel comfortable remaining in this industry and going to a party if they don't want to drink. That's me a lot of times. You know, you'll hear me all the time on the show when Kenny and Ryan are tasting, I'll be like, hey, you know what? I can't taste today. Today's an off day. Like I take off days. That's this is how you remain this is how you keep longevity in this business is you don't drink every day all the time like you're in college. So at any rate, that's a great question, Matt S. I'm thankful that you brought this up because it gives me an opportunity to talk about this because uh, we need to be thinking about health as much as we can. That's going to do it for this week's Above the Chart. Thank you again, Matt. If you want to be like Matt S., hit me up on fredminnick.com. That's fredminnick.com. Click the contact button. And if I like the idea, I'll read it on the air. Till next week. Cheers. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. And they're off for another Give 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of Bourbon. It is Kenny, Ryan, and Fred here tonight. Fellas, say hello. What hello, is up? Friends. 
you like seeing that hello friends i know little, jim nance that's you put it in the in the chat earlier you just giving off the like the nice guy vibes is that what it is you know it's jim nance when he does the masters or whatever i want him to do my eulogy so i don't know i like the hello friends we can do that well hello ryan hello fred <laughs> good to see you Good to see you. But Good to of see you. course, Good this is the Bourbon Community Roundtable, and we're joined, as always, by our good friends. And I'll just go ahead and we'll just do a one by one. So, Blake, go ahead and introduce yourself real quick. I'm Blake from Bourboner and Sealbox. And, you know, just continuing the streak. I feel like I haven't plugged the streak in the last few episodes, but just so if you're listening for the first time, this is Community Roundtable number 87, and that makes number 87 in a row for myself. You know, planes, trains, or Disney World parks try to jump on the roundtable every time I can. Thanks for having me. I feel like you deserve like a lightning bolt patch or something as the 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 most, you know, I guess you can say storied guest that has been on this show before. I don't even consider you a guest. You're just, you're basically you know, like almost, just, you should, we should get like maybe like one and a half percent of whatever comes in at this point. Yeah, I uh, wanted to bring that up while we we're on air, so I'm glad you said it first. I was shooting for two percent, but I'll take one and a half as <laughs> no. Always fun to be on, and yeah, always fun. To, you know, just plug the streak and you know the roundtable. It, it's still one of the biggest things. I have people tell me they've heard of Sealbox from, so it's it's always cool That's to hear good to know, and it just keeps people guessing whether we're brothers or whether we're lost cousins or something like that too. That doesn't stop. You never want to actually disclose it. Just keep the mystery out there. And it's like, they do look suspiciously alike on camera. And then, and then somehow yeah. our emails get crossed. Works. And, you know, I put a description out there because we we're actually hiring for Pursuit Spirits. And the first email comes to you and you're like, I'm pretty sure, just try to decipher it. I'm pretty sure you just posted about this on Facebook and I got a resume. I tried to hire them, but they're like, no. Looking to work at a distillery in Kentucky. I'm like, no, this is for, you know, hanging out in Jacksonville. So I don't think, don't think it's the same job. Well, there'll be a lot of hanging out in Jacksonville apparently in the future, isn't that? Ryan, aren't you heading down there soon? Yeah, I'm waiting on my itinerary from Blake. I'm like, where am I going? <laughs> what times? I, <laughs> there are some things I do well in life. Planning is is not one of them, but yeah, just you you show up, it all works out, and it's just like Louisville, but you're coming here instead. Yeah. Where <laughs> the day ahead of time, tell literally you before I came be. on here, she's like, she's like, what restaurants are we going to? There's dress codes and this and that. Like Blake needs to tell you where we're going. I'm like, I'll do the best I can. <laughs> Blake, you plan just on, like I, I do. I love too. it. I love exactly. it. It's, exactly. It man, this is this is way more pressure now with families involved. I feel like Tiffany's gonna really hate me if she shows up and <laughs> but we'll make, we'll make it happen. I'm gonna print it all out tonight. I'm gonna laminate it, send it to you. You'll be set. I can't wait to see it. I think it's gonna be great. I'm really jealous of you all. I'll I'll document it the whole weekend. Yeah, just lots of stories on the Instagram, you know, you two just hanging out. Maybe you probably, if you get a Taylor Swift sighting, just kind of let me know and it'd be just really amazing. It'll be me outside the Jaguar Stadium waiting on Blake. Where is he? I thought we were going to the game. Well, I mean, that's kind of the reason people watch NFL nowadays is to just catch a Taylor Swift sighting. So I would imagine I'm, I'm really rooting for you all. Yeah, no Chiefs games here. So uh, no, no Taylor Swift sighting. Yeah, I was going to say the Chiefs came pre-Taylor, so she was not in Jacksonville, unfortunately. Just hold out hope. 
You have no idea. Although I think I just set a record for the longest <laughs> intro in Bourbon Community Roundtable history. So I'm going to pass yeah, the mic that's, off. That's a good call. <laughs> so Brian, go next. Uh, we'll see if we yeah. can beat Blake. We'll, we'll see. Yeah, let's let's see how long we can go. Brian with Sipping Corn, Bourbon Justice, all that. Happy to be on 87 and nowhere near Blake's streak, streak but uh, I'm working on it. You're pretty close, hope. though. I've, I've done a lot, but yeah, it's just untouchable when it's 100%. You're at least a solid 85. Solid 85. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. In regards to Lord, and, and, you're my favorite. And, and, I, and I make a lot of roundtables, too, right? Yes, that one too. <laughs> and Eric, who used to be the, I guess you'd say the, the silent man behind Breaking Bourbon. Now he's he's coming out. He's, he's what you're like fourth, fifth appearance on this now. Yeah, something like that. So we'll keep the intro, I guess, that short too. Because if you hear, you know, for every episode, you can go long. You're here short. Keep it short. I'm Eric from Breaking Bourbon, and that's it. We'll keep it short. I go to the God, I love this guy. <laughs> Just no messing around. Let's get to it. So the first topic that I kind of looked at, and it, again, this kind of goes back into an overarching theme of how do we get into more of the mindset of the consumer? And I'm, I think this is probably the first one that we've we've probably talked about it at some point. And it really the kind of first topic that I looked at was, is big bourbon just better? Now, when I talk about big bourbon, we talk about pretty much the major six distilleries that are around Kentucky. You got your Jim Beam, you got your Heaven Hill, you got your Campari. Let's go ahead, name the rest of all for me. We got Brown Foreman, we've got Sazerac, and who am I missing? Diageo. Okay, maybe there's seven in there. Either way, it seems that those particular distilleries seem to dominate every single topic of conversation, our news feeds, the reviews that we see on Facebook or on YouTube, just everything that we we come to see inside of bourbon all kind of sits there and focuses around these six, seven, you know, I guess you said Diageo's of bullets in there, six, seven different types of, of major distilleries. Yet there's over 2000 distilleries across the U.S. So what makes us just always gravitate to this core six? Is it first just, well, their bourbon is just better than everybody else. Is it accessibility or do they just have deep pockets? And so, A, you, a, you get accessibility, you get stuff on the shelf. Or is it B, is there just a bunch of money dumped in marketing and therefore it controls the the mind share of wherever everybody's thinking? And then, by the way, also shout out to I'm Eric and Adam Hyman. They also said, do you lump MGP into this? I think so. I think MGP might be worth lumping into this. So we'll say the big seven, big eight. I think that's probably worth because really there's, like I said, 2000 distilleries across the US. We talk about eight of them, 90 to 99% of the time. Why is that? I'll, I'll jump in. And I mean, obviously I qualify with, I am biased because you know we obviously we pushed predominantly and well, almost exclusively smaller brands and distilleries on Sealbox. But I think it's a couple things. One is just the availability availability of all these products we're talking about, you know, in general, they are on every shelf. If you go anywhere in the world, they're probably going to have Maker's Mark and Jim Beam there as the bourbon option. So I think that's a big part of it. Saying that they're better than everybody else, I I can't get anywhere close to that because I th think there's just so much out there that's really good. But, you, you know, you've got a few things. You just, you've got decades of a head start of marketing. You've got 
million plus budgets at every turn for a lot of these guys. So I think that plays a big role. You know, if we're looking at just the whiskey, I think it's a really even playing field. I think some of the craft guys and smaller brands and blenders are doing a much better job than the bigger guys because, you know, if you look at their the distilleries of like a Heaven Hill or a Jim Beam, there's just not much differentiation. It's it's very homogenized production method, even though they don't like to to say that. So you're really just relying on blending. So I think they can't compete with the smaller brands for that. But as far as pushing distributors, push pushing retailers, pushing bars, pushing pushing retail stores, like there's just no way to compete with that for some of these smaller brands. So that's why I think it's always everywhere and what people just automatically go to. I think that's changing a bit, but I think it's just becoming a much more crowded space. And now everybody's fighting for their share of the pie. Yeah, I think you made a really good point there that we should probably touch on a little bit is that what it takes to actually get on the shelf, stay on the shelf and continue to keep that that mind share is that it does. It takes people that you have to staff in every single market. And even in places like Texas, I mean, you'll have people that you have like five, maybe 10 different people for some of these large distilleries that just take care of the Texas market alone. And their job is to go into liquor stores, make them feel real good about themselves, schmooze them up, take them, you know, whatever it is, kind of give them gifts or do whatever, make sure that the case stacks look really good and give away a bunch of free stuff. And for the most part, it's really hard for smaller brands to compete with that. And that's what it's like. I mean, we've talked about Finger Lakes. We've talked about Wyoming whiskey. We talk about all these other great different distilleries that we all love, yet we all kind of get gobbled up by this engine that is just basically just funneling money into the marketing side of things that you really just, it's hard to compete with that because there's other companies that are sort of doing that pay to play sort of thing. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in. I, I mean, it's when, when you can get Elijah Craig for the same price countrywide and it's solid and I mean, you know what you're getting. It's I think that's really attracts a lot of consumers. So you just need some more education and experience on some of these smaller brands. And I think you'll find things that you like better than Elijah Craig, but they've all got these go-tos that you can get anywhere you want. And that's going to put everybody else at a disadvantage. Ron, I feel like you have a lot of thoughts on this and you're, you're being quiet. Well, I'd like to give everybody else a chance, but I see Fred back there pondering, where is he going to attack and give his, <laughs> his spiel? But yeah, I mean, as, as we've learned, I mean, you know, obviously there's a, a ton of things. They make great products at a great price and you can't mess with that. They have, they have history, which may be real or not real. <laughs> you know, they have a lot of stories about, you know, dead guys who may be true or may not true, but it's nostalgic. People f- like the old times. They feel like, oh, it's America's native spirit. You know, I have this old Daniel Weller guy that we should rename a bottle over and it's 12 years. Yeah, we should pay 500 bucks over it because... Who knows? Daniel may have been a crackhead, you know, back then. But we're going to glorify this guy and just make up a story about it. But you really it, think they had crackheads back then? Like, well, whatever. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Who knows what Daniel was doing? But I hope they don't say that about me one day. But maybe just shine heads. Maybe that's all they had back then. But, you know, the big brands, I mean, it's taken them 100 years to get popular, you know, really. And 
it's been a lot of time and effort, a lot of hard times. There were good times, you know, as Fred will tell you, pre-prohibition and then post-prohibition to the 60s. And they went some really hard times. And so I think it's probably deserved that they get it. You know, the reason I think they're so popular is they they went through that time of not having success. So they had products that they could let sit and age longer while, you know, they diversified and went to, to, to vodkas and rums, tequilas and whatnot, Irish whiskeys, cordials. You know, a lot of these brands are owned by they, they bourbon's not just their their focus. They have a lot of, you know, I guess. God, what's the word I'm looking for? Diversification in their portfolio. Uh, but they just were in a position where they had nice age stock. They could produce it at a, you know, a great price. And two, they own the distribution game. Like that's where everything in alcohol is all about distribution. It's it's like politics. The person that spends the most usually wins the elections. You know, a lot of the up and coming brands that have gone so popular is they've they've had to compete spending money distribution wise in liquor stores, you know, doing case deals, incentives, kickbacks, this and that. That's the name of the game. Cause you can not, even if your product doesn't sell, you can kind of get, if you're in this big group and you can get packaged with a portfolio of products, you know, you're just going to be able to scatter your, your mark, your product out in the market better. And, you know, I think there's just this nostalgia with the, the, those big seven brands that people, really latch onto and there's so many new drinkers that really don't understand labels and history and whatnot and they don't care and that's the unfortunate thing they don't care they just want to go with what everybody says is good whatever tiktoker is doing this is drink three bottles of this instead of blends or whatever you know and that's that's just the consumer mindset right now and but they see oh well you say why shouldn't i drink blends i'm gonna go drink blends because everybody's going after it so i don't know there's a, a lot of things to it but i think the biggest thing is they just have, i think it comes down to price and availability is the biggest thing in dis- distribution ryan i'll throw something at you and so this is i i've my wife was really into a lot of the the a lot like the netflix documentaries and movies recently about like pfizer and pain control drugs and like all all this other kind of stuff where there was a huge reform on what the drug companies can do and how they could incentivize doctors and how they could do all this other kind of stuff. Do you feel like we're at that stage where we should probably, I mean, granted, that's not a endemic where people are dying because of pain meds, but is it the point where it's like, okay, like maybe we should start limiting what these big brands, what they can offer to distributors, because it is an unfair practice to say that, you know, you can't give, you know, nice Patagonia jackets to every salesperson that have your logo on it because they sold a couple cases for you, or you can't do whatever it is. You, you, you can't take them on these trips or you can't give them dinners. You can't do whatever it is because it makes it unfair for the other mom and pops. I want to give a shout out to Sharp Top Distilling Company, who actually put on here that says, they completely agree. They it's that it's hard for us to push distributors without an insane budget, and that takes away their focus from actually creating the craft spirits that they want to for their consumers. Are we at the point where we need to start looking at reform and having some sort of government intervention that says, you know what, like it's unfair, like you're dominating the market because you have more money, and it's not fair for other players in this game, and you're not giving a a, a fair 
you know, a fair take at some other smaller players. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that I'm a free market believer. Ryan, <laughs> Ryan, I was going to say, I don't see Ryan going pro-government. Well, I, mean, yeah. I, I take this <laughs> to well, the extreme, right? Th- those laws are already there, though. Those laws are already there. I mean, it's it's very specific and particular w- once you get down to it yeah. about what. So, so all like the pay-to-play stuff we're, we're describing is actually illegal. Like there's laws against this. Now, that's where... You know, I think everybody in the industry's heard the story about who, whatever rep comes to the bar, swipes the credit card for, you know, 500 bucks of, of drinks that is actually just a way to get on the menu or whatever it is. But, you know, th- these laws are in place. And I think it was the Biden administration probably a year and a half, two years ago, came out with this whole thing of, of a study of the the fairness of of alcohol and the laws and everything behind it. And, and there have been some crackdowns. I know some of the distributors are, are fighting things in California and other places. So the laws are there. I think it's just, it's so prevalent and so hard to really crack down on. We just, it, it's still just a thing. You, you know, it's kind of like we all somewhat joke about, hey, you got to buy a bunch of fireball to get pappy. Well, that's actually not a, a legal practice, but we see it play out every day. So that's that's one thing. And and by the way, I, you know, I, I take it to the extreme of comparing this to like fentanyl. And I know it's not a, <laughs> a crisis like that. Jesus, kidding. Well, no, I mean, that's but that's the same thing. Like government had to step in because these companies were making so much money and they're giving kickbacks to doctors to keep writing more prescriptions. So it's like, well, at what point is it any different to say like, well, we're going to start edging everybody else out of the market because they have more money so they can give more money to distributors who are going to go push their more their product even more yeah but i feel like every Basically leaving, leaving like everybody that. else out and, and like i said it's not the extreme but it's it is it does have some sort of correlation yeah but but every business is that way it's you know that's just the nature of the beast it's all about relationships and you know at the end of the day people you know people want to romanticize this you know and i was having this conversation with someone in the industry it we're all drinking a commodity. <laughs> it's, you know, it's corn liquor that's just been repackaged and, you know, romanticized and, and whatnot. But I mean, every business is like this. You you, you can, you know, there's the, the market is so competitive and whatnot. It's a relationship, monetary based back economy. And I mean, that I just don't every I mean, Costco, you know, we had this discussion where, you know, Total Wine in California, I think, was getting investigated because they were getting better deals than a mom and pop liquor store. And that, that it, it is hard because like, you know, you, you have a similar product that's much, that can be much cheaper at a different store because they buy so much volume, but then a mom and pop can't compete. But then do the mom and pops, you know, I guess, you know, adapt and create better service, do better barrel picks, you know, to compete, you know, it, I don't know. It's just, it's a, I don't think a government oversight is the hard thing too, because if I'm total wine, yeah, I'm like, Hey, I'm, I'm doing way more to support this brand. They should be, you know, that's just economies of scale in any other industry. So it's, it's a slippery slope. And I probably lean more with Ryan of like the, the less government oversight, the better, but it, it still can be an unfair advantage for the smaller guys for sure. So I'll, I'll, I'll throw a curveball to everyone here, but it's not the the pay to play thing is is not as bad in bourbon as it is in rum and in rum 
our taxpayer money pays for Captain Morgan. Like we actually nearly subsidized that distillery 100% with our taxpayer money in St. Croix. So they come to market and they're on third base to in a liquor store with all the marketing power they have because they have no actual cost for making Captain Morgan. Very close, very closely the same with Bacardi, who's paying the same taxes as when they you know, opened up in Puerto Rico many years ago, and they also get subsidized. So in, and in some of the other spirits categories, there's a lot of subsidies being passed around. Now, this all stems from, you know, prohibition, right? So when, when we get back to selling alcohol again, everything gets sent, sent, you know, to the states at the state level. They all become like their own country. They all create their own laws. And there's a lot of things you can do in Rhode Island that you can't do in Texas. That being said, that's the legal side of it. The, the original question is, are the, the big seven, originally the big six, are they, you know, are, why are they better? Are they better? And it really does come back to a branding perspective because of, of prohibition. If you want to take a look the other other states that had prominent whiskey making heritage, Illinois. Illinois had Tin High for, for a long time. You know, for for the most part, it got compared to Kentucky bourbon and they lost every single time there was ever a tasting or there was ever a conversation about what is better. Missouri. Missouri had McCormick for a long time. McCormick actually, you know, got got some wedged in there here and there, but they didn't have any support around them. It was just McCormick, right? There was no other Missouri distillers. Pennsylvania was the biggest competitive state to Kentucky and, you know, Tennessee, and that was rye. And the rye market, you know, was hit harder by vodka than, than bourbon was. And so they all faltered. And now all of those historic Pennsylvania brands like Old Overholt, Michter's, Rittenhouse, those are Kentucky brands now. So what we have here is we have a systematic situation that the states and the way things were created blocked new blood from being built and new distilleries from being built by new blood. And it gave it gave the one region the most brand recognition for a hundred years. So that's why we look and the, the big seven, those are the or the big six initially, those are the ones that survived and kept, you know, pounding the pavement and putting stuff out there. And if you've got the, the New York Yankees are always gonna have more fans than the Milwaukee Brewers for several reasons. One that's where the people are, but also they've got a hundred years of history that the Milwaukee Brewers simply do not have. And so to me, that's why Kentucky bourbon, if you try to buy a barrel of Kentucky bourbon at the wholesale side on the tax receipts, you're going to spend more money than say, if it was, you know, New York or even Indiana, it's just, it's just a brand recognition. Doesn't mean it's actually better. You know, I don't know, man. I've, I'm I'm tasting a lot of craft distillers that is kicking a lot of ass right now. Detling in Alabama, and that, that whiskey is great. Not good, it's great. I'm a personal fan of Spirits of French Lick. I know not everyone feels the same way, but I love that whiskey. And you know, let's not forget about places like Woodenville that would end up getting acquired or a large investment from from the larger companies. So the larger companies see what other people are doing to include 
independent bottlers such as yourselves or Smoke Wagon or Penelope, you know, and sometimes they get acquired, sometimes they get investment. But at the end of the day, it's all about brand recognition and all this stuff we talk about with the way the systems are formed. It all goes back to prohibition, as Ryan mentioned earlier. We always appreciate the history lesson. That's what we needed you here for, Fred. Keep us honest. Yeah, I'll jump in real quick. Kind of to Blake and Brian's part at the beginning, marketing and marketing matters so much and no matter what industry you're in, you know, movies, music, anything, you know, that that has such a big impact on any product. And then to Brian's point too, the price, you, prices matters so much to so many people. So you just, Elijah Craig was a, a great example of just, you, you, you know, a lot of craft distilleries just can't compete with that that kind of price. But also, usually, I think very generally, big companies distill a lot of trust in people, I guess, pun intended there, distill trust in people. So that's a, a natural, you know, why people kind of gravitate to the, the bigger distilleries, just the extra trust there. And they might have had bad experiences with a craft distiller in their, in their past and bought a bottle or two and just was like, wow, this is just terrible. And this could have been two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. But a lot has changed since then. And I think, you know, I, I wrote an article about this not too long, about a year ago or something, that, you know, if you if you asked a bunch of bourbon drinkers what they thought was better, who was making better bourbon, the big companies or the little companies, I I feel like a lot of them would probably say the bigger companies are making better bourbon, I, you know, and if that's true or not. But I think that's a lot what a lot of people feel. I know, I know in my own personal experiences and our own, like, personal groups, a lot of the people that are into bourbon, but not maybe to the level we are, when they, they are always talking about what's coming out with the big guys. They're not talking about, you know, they're almost completely ignoring the, the smaller stuff. And even when I'm trying to explain like, hey, check out this bottle or this bottle, this stuff is really amazing. Yeah, they, they might entertain it, but there's no real excitement surrounding that. Or they just, they're just so focused on what the big guys are coming out with for whatever reason. You know, and I don't know if it's just because it it it's closer to a you know the big companies produce something that is very close in quality. You know, from release to release, where sometimes smaller companies there's a little more variation. So I think sometimes there's a hesitance, for, you know, of different tasting bourbon versus the bigger stuff. You know, different isn't bad; it's just different. So I think that's where a lot of hesitation comes from. Yeah, and I think I think too we forget that. We'd love to be analytical, like dissect, like figure out what tastes best, this and that. Most consumers don't want to think. <laughs> they just want to go into a store. That's why case stacks work so well at the end. That's why displays work so well. Because, you know, my wife sends me to go in to get a Sauvignon Blanc and I see, well, there's a 93-pointer on end of a case stack. I have no idea, but I just want to grab it and I want to sound smart when I get home. You know, that's that's how most consumers think. And, you know, that's why these big companies spend so much money. There's data from when I went to Moonshine University, case stacks and end of sale, point of sale displays increase sales by anywhere from 10 to 25 percent. And that's when consumers go in. They just see the marketing. They see this. They they want to feel smart. They don't want to think they don't care. They just want to feel like they have a good price. It's a safe, good product and something they can take home and brag about. That's what they want to do. That's their their decision buying habits. And, no, very and to be fair, 
typically when you get it from a big seven, you're going to hit all those. That's why they do so well. Yep, totally. And and there's definitely a lot of people that, even to Eric's point, that said, yeah, you got burned by a craft distillery early on, and that basically said, you know, I'm just going to go with. I know it's comfortable. I know I know I can get my wellers, and I'm going to be fine. And that's what a lot of people do. And so they're all chasing green label and red label and whatever it is. And they've got nine bottles of that at home. You know, this is, this is, there's been a lot of stuff in the the chat because I think I ruffled some feathers talking about government oversight. And some people are going, you know, we don't need more TTB. I think the government's got enough in here. And so I guess I'll, I'll kind of flip it. The other side is because the folks at Sharp Top once again said something in here that said, well, what if we, actually deregulate a little bit like what if we got rid of your you know your ability that you, you said you had to go to a distributor Shopify's already taken the cash register online helping millions sell billions around the world but did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify Shopify's point of sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com bourbon, all lowercase. And go to shopify.com bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today, shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S.com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Well, what if we actually deregulate a little bit? Like, what if we got rid of your, you know, your ability that you, you said you have to go to a distributor? What if, can't you well, self-distribute? Well, and we start getting rid of these tiers. We start making it a little bit more accessible for people to get it into the hands of the people that actually want it. Would that actually help Again, to reduce the barrier to entry? But that's also a state situation. Like this is not, I mean, we, we all live in this world and dream. We all want it, but we can't have it because of the complications created post-prohibition. But the deregulation effort was attempted under Reagan and the industry fought it tooth and nail and they didn't deregulate the alcohol industry like they wanted to. The The distillers loved having government help on site. They loved having the government have a key to their warehouse because they were an aided an extra consultant 
and you would never ever have mistakes in you know in the in the batching system never ever well i don't say never ever but they they would have caught something like a bourbon and a rye about to be dumped like it was an extra set of eyes they loved having that and there's also testimony in, in it's in my book one of my books of of executives before the senate committee talking about like if you peel away the government oversight on advertising you'll start have distillers false making false claims prior to the deregulation they would make distillers prove that they were the best selling bourbon they would make them prove that they were the number one selling whiskey in Kentucky or something like they would have to go before a hearing committee closed hearing to prove it and it's it just that that's gone and there's so much misinformation out there to the point we've had several class action lawsuits and so it, to me like the the more we the more you deregulate the more that stuff gets opened back up and i just i don't know about deregulation any more than it is uh, opening up shipping yes but that's a different conversation than i think there needs to be more regulation on labeling i think there's a lot of shenanigans especially with the finished stuff and double oak and all this stuff there, there's just so many like crazy there, there's just so many like things people can get away with with the current label system and it's like okay we need to t tie this up a little bit because i think some consumers are getting duped there's a reason why your free yeah. bourbon tastes like yeah. a cinnabon there's a reason why it tastes like maple <laughs> there's a reason why it tastes like honey it's like okay let's mm -hmm. think you know that's not bourbon so anyways that's all another they're, they're loosening and, and the up, end of right. it all yeah and at the end of it all like that hurts that hurts that you know, coveted 1964 congressional resolution, eventually there's going to be another country that makes bourbon and labels something bourbon and says, you don't respect your own laws. Why should we? And the, the distillers in the 80s, the early 80s, they predicted this. Now, it came a little time after, but they predicted this would happen because they knew the human mindset of when you're out there. And, it, and for everyone new getting into the game, they're like, oh, well, why can't we do this? And why can't we do that? Oh, you're just a hater because you're calling it out, Ryan or Fred. You're just a hater. But nobody, nobody respects that. And I, I don't, I cannot remember the brand, but there's a new brand out that's a single barrel. And they said that it's a, a blend of two barrels and it's a double single barrel. I'm like, that was Ezra Brooks. It was Ezra Brooks. <laughs> yeah. That's, what, what it's definitely that? a Lux, that's awful. Lux brand. I remember that. Yeah. It was a double single barrel. Yeah. Like, Wait a minute. That's like, see, that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. You know, I mean, that should never, ever, ever, ever be on a label. All right. Yeah, I think there's there's something we can definitely go to on the label thing. Only because people, I, I think Ryan said it 10 times before, people that have just now getting to bourbon, they don't really know what bourbon tastes like because everybody wants their bourbon to taste like something else that isn't actual bourbon. But as we, you know, a few more things as we kind of stick on this topic before we kind of close it out. So David in the chat said something. They said, you know, we keep mentioning Elijah Craig. He said, is there a craft distillery somewhere that's offering a widely available 12-year-old cash drink bourbon? And he said, big bourbon is better. So I don't think there is anybody that can offer that. And I think that goes back into economies of scale and everything else that we have been talking about is that. To get to the point where you can offer a 12-year-old cash-strength bourbon nationwide, 
is a very, very difficult thing to do. And therefore, there's only seven distilleries that are capable of doing something like that. Is there anything that I'm missing that I like? Because I look at that and I'm like, yeah, I mean, I can understand that, like why they have the market share and why they have the maybe not the market share, but they definitely have the mind share of the consumer because it's everywhere. You can find it wherever it is that you want to go. And it's good whiskey. There's nothing wrong with it. Plus, they can do it at a very aggressive price point. And they're competing with the other six people that are in their category. But beyond that, in the craft whiskey world, no. I think that's where you have to go and search and hunt and go shop on Sealbox. So I brought up Elijah Craig on purpose because I, I swear we talked about this on an earlier, like really early episode. And our example was the Heaven Hill six-year bottled and bond. And this, I mean, this had to have been years and years ago, but we were comparing it to craft whiskeys of the time. You know, what could you get that was six years old that, you know, was eleven ninety nine? The answer is absolutely nothing. And then the next question is, you know, what, what compares to it taste wise? And again, it was really, you know, almost absolutely nothing. You had to find a barrel from, you know, that, that was particularly good, I think, to compete with it. And now we're now we're five years down the road and it's we're comparing it to the 12 years. So we're moving along. I mean, give give craft some time to catch up. There's some who haven't caught up and I'm not going to throw shade on some, but there's some locally that just are as bad as they were six years ago. But a lot really have improved and, you know, give us some time and there'll be some 12 years out there right now. The answer is there is none. I mean, you, that's the only one you can get that's a national release. It's 12 years cast strength and pretty much unbeatable in that category. And I would say that, you know, that's predicated on something 12 years old is going to be better than anything under 12 years old. But I, I don't think that's the case. So, y you know, it's I always tell people, hey, if if you want to craft whiskey that tastes like Four Roses, just go buy Four Roses because that's out there. So that's where I think you know, the competition side of things kind of swing to craft, craft producers favor just because they can make different products. And, you know, everybody's taste is different. You, you can look at every judging, every competition across the board each year, different stuff wins every year. So it's always so subjective. And that's where, you know, if we just said who can get the oldest release at the highest proof for the cheapest price, there's no competition. The big guys take it down every single time. But I guarantee you, everybody on this panel and the chats, they probably don't want to drink Elijah Craig 12 year every single night. You know, that's just not what you're always feeling, but it's good whiskey. And at the end of the day, it gets a little boring. I, I feel that everything that everything what you just mentioned, it's it's hard to compete. It truly is because they have economies of scale. They have time on their side. And as a craft distiller, it is very, very impossible to compete at a price point that they're also competing at. And that also goes back to Brian's point saying, you know, we were a few years ago looking at the six year having a hill bottom of bond for $12. Well, even today, I don't think anybody can even compete in the $12 realm much anymore. I mean, everybody that that category is starting to, to go up as well. But uh, to be fair, I think the craft and the new brands have pushed the the big seven to be innovative and have better releases. They kind of get in their comfort zones of having just their, you know, their flagship lineups that are fine. They're okay, but they're 
like Blake said, they get kind of boring. But as you progress, and I keep bringing it to wine because I just it's a, a area that I'm not familiar with, but I just noticed the progression in it. Like Pinot Noir is like the starter for for most wine drinkers, but then you get bored with it and you move to like a cab or a Zen, and then and then you're and it's the same thing with bourbon. You're going to start with those big seven because they're solid, they're consistent. But then you're like, I want more. And I think these all these craft brands and new brands have really pushed these distilleries to innovate and create exciting new offerings. I mean, never in a million years would I thought Heaven Hill or any, would, would have like, you know, finished stuff or double oak this or that. It was just, you know, it was always like, nope, it's Evan Williams, Elijah Craig, Henry McKenna and Parker's. That's it, you know. But now they have like, you know, all these line extensions and all these really cool one-offs and and whatnot so you know i think it's a good thing for the whole category but people have to support these smaller brands otherwise the big six are just going to keep squashing and squashing and it's just going to be a monopoly at the end of the day so it's like if there's ones you like support them you know it might be a little more expensive and that's fine and that does suck but you know it's i don't know it's not big corporate america which is kind of cool all right as we kind of wrap it up here I'll, i'll throw it out to the group here one more time. So we've talked about big brands and everything like that, and they don't need any advertising advice from us because they're already paying their PR people tens of millions of dollars a year to actually start and you know figure this out and get in front of more people. But let's put some maybe some uh, some things out there for the smaller brands, the people that actually listen to us and and pay attention and try to figure out well how do I make an impact in the industry? How do I start to try to find my foothold? What's like a, a good piece of advice that you would give to a a smaller brand? Maybe it's craft or maybe it's just a, a smaller NDP on how they can start making an impact and how they can start gaining some mind share versus just trying to paint the earth and get their bottle in every single corner stop and throwing a bunch of money and distributor incentives and everything like that. Yeah, that's an easy one. You start local. I, I just had a meeting with the craft distiller the other day. They're talking about like how they made a big national push when they launched and got in a lot of attention nationally. And but they're not in they're not served in every bar in their own city and they're trying to fix that. And so that's that's the kind of that's the kind of mentality you need to have. You need to you need to have a very conservative grow out approach because people are traveling all the time and they want to taste something that's local. And if you're not there to win that person in a bar in your hometown, you know, you're not going to win them when they move back to Buffalo or New York city or wherever. I said Buffalo because the bills are playing right now, but that's, you're not going to win them when they go back, but if they like it and they go back, they're going to want it. They may want it again. So start local grow out and try to work with uh, distributors that will actually care about you and not forget about you. And by the way, shout out to Matthew Layton. He kind of said this one too, is that most smaller craft brands make a mistake by trying to go outside of that. And I always want to put an asterisk next to this and says, yes, go local, own your backyard, except if you live in Kentucky. Well, even Kentucky, there's micro micro areas, right? You know, sure, so like Louisville. Like like Owensboro, <laughs> like you go Owensboro, well, right? What do you so, I mean? Green River owns Owensboro. I don't think any is anybody else going to touch it. That's just it. But like they were so eager for it, you know. In Western Kentucky, Casey Jones and MB Rowland are you know people can't 
you know, stock their stuff enough in their and their and their bars. Tiny, but still it's important. Yeah, I think that is and even if it's not local, I think it's about finding your spot and your niche and your place to connect. I had a conversation with a brand this week where they went to a I won't give everything away, but went to a a city and it's like, man, I, I, every store I visit, every bar I go to, they're just thrilled that a brand owner came in, took the time. And he's like, and we got all these placements. And, you know, I think you've got to find those spots where they'll embrace your product. They, they like the story. They, they like to drink it. And you, you know, the old saying is liquid to lips. So it's like, how much can you get people trying it and tasting it? And that's easier these days. I think just the online stuff is, is great. You know, sample kits and all those types of things, Zoom tastings, while have phased out a little bit post-COVID. I think the old liquid to lips, getting people talking about it and excited for it, it just, it it's still the nature of the game. And especially for smaller brands, that's tough because, you, you know, you can only be so many places. But at the end of the day, you got to find your, your pocket of whether that's your hometown or just you know, somewhere else that, that buys into what you're selling and, and dominate those. But yeah, it's, it's just a slow game at times, as I think most of us have seen. And, you know, a lot of times we want the solution to a problem to be this, you know, huge epiphany, but a lot of times it's just grinding it out of constantly getting people to try it, constantly telling the story, constantly meeting new people and getting them to tell the story. And it just goes out from there. And so that's a good problem. I'd like to call out Sean's comment uh, in the comment section there. He talked about, I'd support a 200 milliliter bottle. I'd buy three times more if bottles were smaller. And it's something us Sprick and Bourbon guys have always mentioned over and over again. I, I wrote an article. All lies. So, Every time we try to sell 200. <laughs> yeah, I get it. it it's Just, tough shelf space. Like stores probably don't want to take smaller amount for the same shelf space. But I think from the uh, bourbon drinker viewpoint you know when i interviewed colin from uh, kings county and they're big about doing different size bottles and uh, it was such a you know refreshing thing to see from them to, to be able to buy a smaller amount for you know a smaller dollar amount and and be able to try more things and be a little more adventurous if you didn't have to spend 50 to 100 dollars on every bottle but it's more than just putting it out there and hoping a store picks it up it's it's there's a lot involved and it's it would be a major movement I, I think keep doing what you're seeing a lot of them do, and that's try to flip the script that the major seven are your McDonald's and your Burger King and your Wendy's and go for exclusivity and a and an experience and better quality. And a, a lot of the craft distilleries are able to do that. Some not so much, and they try to pretend that. But if you can back it up with good bourbon, I mean, that's your key right there. Very true. Love all that. Good advice for uh, all around. Yes, there's definitely this game has is a lot different than anything else that I've ever been involved in. I've realized it is a high touch point and you have to win people over at the personal level every single time. And it's a slow drip to make people fans of, of anything. So if there's anything that I've learned through this game and for anybody that's a, a smaller distiller that's out there, Yes, it is a it is a slow burn and a hard grind to make that happen, as as Blake said as well. well. It's a fast burn with cash. <laughs> it's a fast burn with cash, <laughs> but and it's it's definitely going to make the gray hair start coming in a lot faster too. In the beard, 
And the beer. And the beer. Yeah. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of the Bourbon Community Roundtable. I had another question queued up, but we were already 45 minutes in. I said, let's let's go ahead. We'll save that one for the next time. I won't give any spoiler alerts because who knows? Things could change in the next couple of weeks. It's what's your favorite antique collection <laughs> bottle this year is the question. Didn't want to didn't want to ruin the surprise, but <laughs> I can tell you this much. It's choose your favorite. For me, it wasn't George T. Stag. I didn't like it this year, and I was that makes me very disappointed. For me, it wasn't Weller. Yeah, same. I usually mine's Weller. I, mean, I did. I didn't. I like didn't either. Weller. They only. I got a sample of the Thomas Andy. Huh, so sorry, that <laughs> so was that my wasn't your favorite, favorite. in the least favorite. <laughs> yes. I, my favorite. In I like the idea from the chat of going to an old school BCR. You know, when we talked about ninja you know, hyper blending. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, I think we should do that. Bring back the ninja blending. Bring us. A, yeah. Bring out the ninja blender again, man. I think we should. We should. We should do a BCR blind tasting again, where we all Ooh, send out like, samples. Ooh, that's a good idea. Everybody tastes, and then I'll send you that Finger Lakes. Yeah, holiday edition. Holiday edition. That's going to be the one. Ooh, holiday. Yeah. I mean, we've also got what thirteen more until we hit number one zero zero. So it's, it's got to be a big one. We got to do a hundred. Are we doing it in person at the distillery? Yeah. Sure. Whatever you guys want to yeah. do. <laughs> If you, happen to, if you happen to show up that day, perfect. We'll record. I like the idea of the holiday one. That's soon. I'm, I'm, I, I like the blind tasting. I think it would be fun. We should do that. But everyone, this was a, another fantastic episode of, I was about to say this week in bourbon, but the Bourbon Community Roundtable. We, we record too many damn episodes nowadays. But again, thank you all for tuning in. And let's go ahead and give a sign off for everybody else that's out here. So, Blake, I'll start with you first. Yeah, Blake from Sealbox. So always fun to be here. Good, good conversation, and and I think a lot of good insights. So appreciate it. Thanks for having me. For sure, Brian. Yeah, Brian was sipping corn, bourbon justice. Drink what you like, guys. I like okay. that. <laughs> yeah, and Eric. I'm Eric from Breaking Bourbon, and I <laughs> and drink what to you the like. <laughs> Yeah, and drink what you don't like. <laughs> there you go. Drink more craft whiskey, <laughs> even if you don't like sticks. it. There you go. Yeah, try something else. Try something new. That's what I'll end with that. Try something there we new. go. I love it. This has been another fantastic episode. And make sure if you like the show, don't leave us a review. Tell somebody else about it. Make sure you go and have them subscribe, listen to it, and then follow everybody that's on here from Bourboner and Sealbox and Sipping Corn and Breaking Bourbon, of course, and Fred Minnick and Bourbon Pursuit and Pursuit Spirits. If you want to see everything else that Ryan and I are trying to do to break into bourbon full-time, go and check us out over there. But with that, everybody, cheers, and we'll see you next time. Toodles. Toodles.